pleasure to be with you here tonight. I uh, didn't, did not protest the songs. I am um, struggling with a sinus infection, and so I don't have a loud voice as it is, and trying to make sure I beat the air conditioning tonight saved my voice. But I wanted to just say it's a, a privilege to be able to meet with God's people and to hear you sing. Uh, you know, the Lord is not grading our voices. He is examining our praise, and uh, just to hear you lift up your voice in song has been an encouragement already to me tonight, and praise the Lord for it. <clears throat> if you would, take your Bibles and turn in them to Leviticus chapter 9. If uh, you just brought your New Testament, uh, it is, I think, in the Old Testament in your pew Bible. You didn't take this out, did you? No. Right. Leviticus chapter 9. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you, and uh, as Jacob said, we've had the opportunity to be in class together as well as the opportunity to be at the table together, breakfast table usually, and to fellowship, and uh, he's been a great encouragement to me. I thank the Lord for your pastor and the opportunity to share the the word of the Lord with you tonight, and uh, we have in our day and in our current American Christianity, not just America, really throughout the world, a concern over worship. And uh, there have been and continue to be wars and uh, rumors of wars over what styles of worship and uh, what should be involved in worship and what do I like in worship and what did I get out of worship. And uh, I find it interesting that much of the discussion overlooks the text that we'll look at here tonight in Leviticus chapter 9. This is the first worship service. Now, I believe in a distinction between Israel and the church. not trying to minimize that. However, this is the first corporate gathering of the people of God for the worship of God. And I think it's very instructive for us to understand what worship is all about in light of that. And uh, how did we find this passage in our, in our church? Well, much like what goes on here, we just go through the Bible. We've been going through the Pentateuch, and uh, I've encouraged our folks, you know, if at, in our afternoon service, we have an afternoon service, and if you follow along with me and you're there every week that we're in Leviticus, you will have read through the whole book by the time you're done. And that's... Uh, sometimes an accomplishment because we read through the Bible in a year and we get to books like Leviticus and we say, I like Proverbs. I like Paul. And so I hope this section tonight from God's Word will be an encouragement and a blessing to you. Let's read beginning in verse 1 and we'll read down to the end of the, the chapter, verse 24. Now it came about on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a calf, a bull for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering, both without defect, and offer them before the Lord. Then to the sons of Israel you shall speak, saying, Take a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both one year old, without defect, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings, to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil for today, The Lord will appear to you. So they took what Moses had commanded to the front of the tent of meeting, and the whole congregation came near and stood before the Lord. Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Moses then said to Aaron, Come near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering, so that you may make atonement for yourself and for the people. Then make the offering for the people that you may make atonement for them, just as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron came near to the altar and slaughtered the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. Aaron's sons presented the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood and put some on the horns of the altar and poured out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar, the fat and the kidneys and the lobe of the liver of the sin offering, Then he offered up in smoke on the altar, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin, however, he burned with fire outside the camp. 
Then he slaughtered the burnt offering, and Aaron's sons handed the blood to him, and he sprinkled it around the altar. They handed the burnt offering to him in pieces with the head, and he offered them up in smoke on the altar. He also washed the entrails and the legs and offered them up in smoke and the burnt offering on the altar. Then he presented the people's offerings and took the goat of the sin offering, which was for the people, and slaughtered it and offered it for sin like the first. He also presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the ordinance. Next, he presented the grain offering and filled his hand with some of it and offered it up in smoke on the altar beside the burnt offering of the morning. Then he slaughtered the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings, which was for the people. And Aaron's sons handed the blood to him and he sprinkled it around on the altar. As for the portions of the fat from the ox and from the ram, the fat tail and the fat coverings and the kidneys and the lobe of the liver... They now placed the portions of fat on the breasts, and he offered them up in smoke on the altar. But the breast and the right thigh Aaron presented as a wave offering before the Lord, just as Moses had commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. And he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meaning when they came out and blessed the people. The glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. As I mentioned, in the book of Leviticus, the opening chapters, chapters 1 through 7, are dealing with all the various offerings. And they go through them in two different ways. They go through them from the perspective of the one giving the offering, the the sacrificer, if I can make up a word. And then they go back and they take them from the perspective of the priest. And so twice you get to see these offerings and their significance. And then beginning in chapter 8 on into chapter 10, there's some specific details for the ordination of the priest. And then there's this service in chapter 9. And then there's a sad follow up to that in chapter 10 with the sons of Aaron and the sin that they commit. But it focuses on the ministry that God had in store for the people of Israel through the sacrificial system. In that light, we can look at this text and we can see that God's people can enjoy worship when they seek God's presence in God's way. That's how I'd summarize the message of Leviticus chapter 9. That God's people, the gathered assembly of Israel, identified, called out from Egypt, and established as God's chosen nation. God's people can enjoy genuine worship when they seek God's presence in God's way. And, and I'd just like to walk through the text this, this evening and look at six different points. They don't have subpoints. So you don't have to worry. I will be done by 9 o'clock as I was instructed. He said, it was at 9.30, which I forget. 9.30, all right. First thing I want you to see is the goal of worship. The goal of worship. And that's found in the first six verses. The goal of worship is the knowledge of God. In chapter 8, Aaron and his sons in, in the priesthood are given an ordination, identified by God as called. And they were to stay seven days in the the tabernacle, the confines of the tabernacle, and serve there. And so the first verse says, on the eighth day, they fulfilled their obligation, their, their initial commitment, and now it's the day after that. And the Lord, through Moses, says, Aaron, we're going to have a service of worship. You need to call for the leaders, the elders, and all of the congregation. And they're going to gather. And you're going to go and you're going to offer sacrifices for yourself. A sin offering and a burn offering. Then you're going to go back and you're going to offer sacrifices for the people. A sin offering. A burn offering. A peace offering with a grain offering mixed in. And included in that was this wave offering. And... In the midst of all of that, God had a purpose. And it's found in two verses in particular here for us. In verse 4. 
For today the Lord will appear to you. And so they obeyed. And then in verse 6, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. You see, folks, that's what worship is about. Worship is not about an experience of an emotion that I'm moved and I feel something, although that can happen in genuine worship. Worship is not about evangelism per se, although it should happen in worship. What worship is about is God coming down to His people and making Himself known. His glory being on display. The goal of what God was doing in all of Exodus 21 up to this point, in all of the rules about you have to have these posts and it has to be made from this animal skin and it has to be this color and it has to have this candelabra and it has to have this altar and this and all of these things have been moving forward so that God would have a place to reside. A tabernacle. A tent of meeting. A place where He could come down and be with His people. So we shouldn't be surprised when God gathers His people for that inaugural worship service for the nation of Israel, that the promise at the outset is, so that God would appear to you. That He might make Himself known. And it's important in in the context of this just to notice that genuine worship always coincides with obedience. This is filled with commands. Take for yourself, verse 2. Offer before the Lord. Say to the sons of Israel. And then verse 5, what Moses has commanded. Verse 6, that the thing which the Lord has commanded you to do. And what transpires as Aaron comes and as the people come, what God promised transpires. Obedience is necessary for worship. And you cannot have genuine worship without God's people coming with an an attitude of subservience or falling down before God in humble service. I guess that would make sense, right? Worship is not transpiring between equals. Uh, When I was growing up, I hate to confess it, but I probably worshipped Isaiah Thomas. Not as much as I worshipped God, but uh, I wore number 11. Um, I played point guard. He was all over my locker at school along with my wife. Her picture was there too. I think I may have had more than Isaiah than you though. Sorry. Didn't ever want to marry Isaiah. Uh, I... I didn't consider myself an equal. I would watch and just like, wow, I can't believe he made that pass. Or I can't believe he scored that basket. I cannot believe all of the the wonderful things that he could do and that I wanted to try and do on the basketball floor. My admiration or adoration of him as a basketball player signified that I was not his superior. And I wasn't even his equal. I was his inferior, yearning, longing to be like him if I could. Well, that's the attitude of of an obedient follower of God. You don't come to Wednesday night church. As I say, preaching to the choir here. You don't come to Wednesday night church because you're somehow equal with God and your wants and His wants in worship are on the same plane. You come as the one who is His servant, His follower. And that demands that you come on His terms and in His way. So the goal of worship in verses 1-6, through the goal of worship is the knowledge of God, knowing who God is. How can it be that we, finite creatures, can come to know the infinite, glorious God as fallen, sinful, 
God-haters. Well, there's a means that God has created for us to be able to worship Him. And that's found in verses 7 through 11, and again in verse 15. Verses 7 through 11 capture it for Aaron, and then verse 15 captures it for the people. We'll read verse 15 for sake of uh, time and my annoying voice here tonight. Then he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering, which was for the people, and slaughtered it and offered it for sin like the first. Poor little goat. If we understood what has transpired in chapters 1 through 7, this was a perfect goat. No blemish. No fault of its own. It didn't wander off into the mountain or go where it wasn't supposed to go. Here was a perfect animal. And yet its life was extracted from it for the sin of the people. This is the, the establishment. I mean, personally, I think it goes back even to Genesis, but we'll say at least we have in, in Leviticus a clear picture of what is known as propitiation or substitutionary atonement. The goat was innocent. And in fact, goats, just to be clear, goats don't sin. They can ever. You know, I know our animals talk and they're, they're wise and they can bring our paper when we need it and our shoes and our slippers and cook us breakfast and all that. I mean, the reality is animals don't make sinful moral choices. But here was an animal losing its life as a picture of what God intended for Christ to do thousands of years later. This goat served as the substitute for the people. Its innocent life was taken for their guilt. So, here's the picture. Israel... God's people. He wanted to dwell with them, by the way. forgot to mention. That's a very biblical New Testament concept. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We are the temple of God. We are the inner dwelling place. Again, in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21 and 22. The church is the dwelling place of God. And 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 21 and 22. When people, unsaved people, come into your church they are supposed to know, hey, God is in this place. That's what's supposed to happen as a result of the proclamation of God's Word. So, Israel and and the church are not identical. They're, They're not parallels. But there are some similarities that we share. And the same thing in regards to the redemption. Theirs was by faith in the promise of God to deliver them by means of a promised deliverer. We know who that deliverer is. It's Jesus Christ. The way that we can gather on a Wednesday night and come to know God and Him to be pleased to dwell with us, sinners who have taken our fist and shaken it in His face and told lies when He's the truth and hated, equivalent of murder, when He is the life, when we have lusted, when He is pure and God-honoring, because He is God, pleasure at His hand that is forevermore. When we have twisted all of the good that He has, how can we come before Him into His house and He be kindly disposed to us? It's because Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the one who, as we could say, moved the transaction from the wrath of God piled up against you and me, to now you're in His favor. That's the the term that Paul uses in Romans 3, verse 25, that we were the, the propitiation, or that Christ was the propitiation of God's wrath against us. Or in 1 John 2, 2, that Christ was the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins alone, but the sins of the whole world. So, the goal of worship. God wants to meet with you. That can happen by His initiative 
through His Son, and that was prefigured here in the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 9, in the death, the sin sacrifice. Well, what's the evidence that true worship is going on? Well, look at verses 12 through 14. We've seen the sin sacrifice. Aaron offered it for himself and then for the people. But he offered another sacrifice. He slaughtered the burnt offering. Aaron's sons handed the blood to him and sprinkled around on the altar. And he handed the burnt offering to him in pieces, the head, and he offered them up in the smoke on the altar. And he washed the entrails and the legs and offered them up in smoke with the burnt offering on the altar. Here's a different offering. This was for Aaron. And then again in verses 16 through 18, he does the same for the people. What, what stands behind the burnt offering? Well, the burnt offering pictured the entire sacrifice being offered up to God. We would translate that into the New Testament, I would think, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices which are holy and acceptable unto God, the reasonable service of our worship. A living sacrifice demands the totality of your life. Well, that was what was being pictured in the burnt offering. Not a portion was spared. Even in the sin offering, there were certain parts that were cut away and burned outside the camp. But in the burnt offering, the whole of the animal, the whole of the sacrifice was burnt up to the Lord to give a picture of complete and sincere, wholehearted life commitment. Does that characterize your life? It's easy for us as uh, human beings to segment, to you know, to have that old expression, you know, about your your spouse. Well, I I told you I loved you on the day we got married. If anything changes, I'll let you know. Till then, don't expect to hear from me. I mean, that is just very segmented. Because I did something on one particular day does not mean the reality of it is true throughout the remainder of our days together. But that's how we sometimes treat God. Because I made a commitment to you in taking your salvation to me, somehow that just means, God, you know I love you. But don't touch my pocketbook or my wallet. You know that I love you. But don't touch my entertainment, my television, my movies, or my radio. Don't, don't go there because that's just kind of, you know, my veg time. God, you, you know that I love you. Don't touch my relationships. Don't touch my children. Don't touch my parents. Don't just leave. Those areas of my life are for me. Well, friend, that's not true worship. Those are not true worshipers. True worshipers come for the knowledge of God. That's the goal. And they come by means of the death of a substitute, an acceptable sacrifice. And they come offering the totality of their lives. Now, we're not talking about some you know, post-salvation. I threw a, you know, a stick into a fire and I dedicated my life to the Lord. No, this is actual real commitment living sacrifice that is pleasing to God. The whole of your life, your work, your family, your relationships, your money, your leisure, all of these things are offered up to the Lord because He is your King. So we've seen the means, the evidence, the goal, Fourth thing I want you to see here tonight is found in verses 18 through 21. And that is the result of true worship. The goal of true worship, knowledge of God. The means of true worship, the death of an acceptable sacrifice. The evidence is complete and sincere commitment. The result 
Verse 18. The result is fellowship with God. Then He slaughtered the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of the peace offering, which was for the people. And Aaron's sons handed the blood to Him and He sprinkled it around on the altar. As for the portion of the fat from the ox and from the ram, the fat tail and the fat covering and the kidneys and the lobe of the liver, they now placed the portions of the fat on the breast and He offered them up in the smoke on the altar. But the breast and the right thigh Aaron presented as a wave offering before the Lord, just as Moses had commanded. Alright, this is not the wave that your pastor does when he goes to the Tigers game. Not this wave offering. I mean, what, what is this? I mean, there's so many things going on. I've got peace, I've got grain, I've got wave. What's going on here? What's going on here is a picture for the people of Israel. Imagine, you know, you're a church family. And uh, on a couple Sundays from now, you're going to come together at God's house. Because you're the dwelling house of God. Whether it's in this building or outside in the parking lot or at a park. Wherever it is, it's not the building, but you're going to come together as God's house, His dwelling place. God meets with you. And you meet with one another and with God. And what if everything is all right between all of you and between God? Wouldn't that be awesome? That was the peace offering. The peace offering was a portion. The best portions were given to God. They were burned on the altar. They were His. However, very clearly in chapters 1-7, through seven, you have to go back and read them, but the, the author, make, Moses, makes known through the command of God that the priest had a portion That was the wave offering. It was offered up to God, and as it were, God gave it back to the priest as their portion. But they had to eat that portion in the tabernacle. And the rest of the animal, besides God's portion, the priest's portion, the rest of the animal was for everybody else, whoever was there. Whether it was your your good buddy, or is the guy who kind of annoyed you because, you know, whatever, he just gets on my nerves. I don't like him so much, but he's okay. Whoever is in the tabernacle is beckoned to come to a meal. And the meal says, God is pleased with you. And that's pictured as the priest, God's representative, eats the portion of God's sacrifice. And you can see, God accepts me. And not only that, there's peace between God's people. As God's people are gathered around whatever the animal was, whether it was a large animal or a small animal, whatever it was, it was to be enjoyed because the people of God are okay with each other and they're okay with God. That's what happens when real worship happens. It doesn't matter whose name is on the van, whose pictures in the newspaper, who is the great person. All of those things fall to the wayside when true, true worship happens. People want to know God. And they come through Christ. And they come committing their lives. And they commit to fallen sinners. And they come week after week knowing Christ has made everything right between God and me and between God and my fellow worshiper. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And that's glorious. That's what church is supposed to be about. That's what we see in Acts chapter 2 as the early church was established and then on into chapters 3 and chapter 4 as they shared with one another. They fellowshiped. That's the direct evidence and, and confirmation or result, excuse me, of true worship. Fifth thing. I want you to see tonight the confirmation of true worship is when God is there. Look in verse 22 through verse 24, the first part. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. Probably something similar, we're not exactly sure, to Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and, and 
prosper you. The Lord lift up your or lift up His face upon you and give you peace. Something similar to to that. Some sort of blessing. The promise of God being on your side and for your good. But notice, it doesn't stop there. And he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of the fat on the altar. And here is God showing His people He's here. That was the promise at the outset. That was the goal, right? The goal was for people to come to know who is God. Show us your glory. Who who said that in the Old Testament? Anybody remember? It's found in Exodus. They were on a mountain. Moses, right. Moses asked the Lord, Lord, show me your glory. What does that mean? Well, in effect, he was saying, Lord, let me know who you are. Let me know you, who you really are. The glory of God is His his genuine weight or significance. The real God made known. Now, I wonder what it would be like if uh, Sunday, pastor stands up, begins to preach, and all of a sudden, the salads, we'll say two weeks from now, and tell all your friends this is what's going to happen. The salads are all there for you know Sunday night dinner afterwards, and fire falls from heaven and burns them all up. And God's glory appears, maybe in a bright cloud. That would be kind of cool. Scary, but also kind of awesome. Well, that wasn't the normal experience of the people of Israel, was it? It happened on a few occasions when God lit the the altar after the tabernacle had been built. It happened here. It happened at Mount Carmel. Remember Elijah and the prophets of Baal? And the prophets of Baal couldn't do anything, couldn't call Baal. He was out on vacation, sleeping, maybe taking a bathroom break. They... You know, Elijah's mocks and mocks, and finally he builds the altar, pours all kinds of water all over it, and prays a simple prayer. Boom! Fire falls from heaven, and everything is incinerated. But those are the very rare occasions. It's significant for the people of Israel from this point forward because God wanted them to know that what they did week after week after week, was still observed and still a reflection and still a part of knowing who God was. That God was in the tabernacle. Behind those curtains, the Holy of Holies, God's presence was there. And they were allowed to come in every aspect of their worship. And they were able to come to know God a little bit better. And I'm glad that that was the way it was for Israel. Because that's the way it is for us, isn't it? We don't get the salads burned up or or, uh, some great cloud. But is God present when you gather to worship? Absolutely. And I would suggest If you come for the goal of knowing God and you come based on the work of Christ and and you come with a, a heart that is seeking to the best of your ability by the grace of God to be a living sacrifice and you come knowing that there's peace between you and God and your fellow worshipers, that when God's Word, even through this flawed voice and frail preacher on a Wednesday night that God will make Himself known. Because that's what He wants to do. He wants you to know Him. Think all the way back to the beginning. 
Genesis. What was it that was a warning to Adam and Eve that, oh no, we got to hide? It was that they knew that God was walking in the cool of the garden because He wanted to make Himself known to His creation. What will it be when you get to the end? You read Revelation chapter 2. But when you get to the end of Revelation, God will be with His people. And there will be no intermediaries necessary. He will dwell with us. We will see Him and delight in Him. That's what God wants to happen every time you gather as a church. Who cares whether you like the music or whether you like the this or you like the, the auditorium or this or that? Who cares? God wants to let you know who He is. And if you have a faithful pastor, and I know you do, He's just going to take you through the Word of God so that you can see who God is. And it's my experience. I've been privileged to to grow up in a large church, to be involved in very small churches, and to be in various parts of the world, and to, to be involved in worship and languages I didn't understand. Brazil on a couple different occasions, in Puerto Rico, in uh, Ireland, I could understand their English a little bit. Um, been in Germany, tried to sing some German that I didn't know, worship with some belief. And you know what? When the Word of God was proclaimed, God was there with His people because He wants to make Himself known every week here with you. So what what is the, the response? Final point, the response of true worship. Well, it's found at the end of verse 24. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. What a, what a great balance that puts before us for the response of true worship. It's like, yes! Awesome! I publicly was teasing your pastor here just a little bit ago against the, the, the Tigers, going to the Tigers game. I had the opportunity to go with two of my boys, my father-in-law, myself, two of my boys. We sat in the right field seats about 20 rows up. And the Tigers were playing a a day game against the Minnesota Twins. And uh, Porcello was pitching. And he, they call it pitching. I mean, he was just getting hit after hit. But the, the, uh, the Twins weren't scoring a lot of runs. And uh, the Tigers were down, and he was like four to one. And they they came back, and they got close. And then uh, Cecil Fielder stepped up to the plate. Not Cecil, his son, Prince. Sorry, it was a long time. No, it was this year. Prince Fielder steps up to the plate, and he turns on a, I think it was a fastball, and it lands like for that. Hymnal is right there, away from... Now, I couldn't knock my father-in-law down to get it. And it bounced off that pew and landed right behind us, like two rows. And the lady back there let us look at the ball. I got to show my boys they were sitting right down in front of me. When that ball was coming, I wasn't just like, oh, good, they're going to take the lead. In fact, my mother-in-law was watching at home and uh, they showed us. I mean, this is my, my claim to fame. Being on TV, they showed us. And I was like pushing my son in front of me. Not to get the ball, but I was just so excited. I was like, you know, yes! If we can do that over simple little things like a home run ball in a game that 20 years from now will mean nothing. What? When God comes to you every week, and shows His beautiful character and His holiness and His grace and His mercy and His zeal 
and all of the attributes of His glorious nature, when He shows them to you, how can we sit? And I don't mean you have to jump and run and all of that, but your heart should be moved. Joyful shouting was Israel's response. But it wasn't irreverent either. They fell on their faces. They knew this was not any ordinary God like they had seen in Egypt. This was the one true and living God who is to be feared and honored and reverenced and respected. And I think those two things are our responses to what happens when worship takes place. We have great... Every week there should be great joy. Even when it's some of those hard passages that talk about judgment. And you don't like to think about how that judgment may happen to your children or to your, your parents or your co-workers. And, and it's kind of sad. But then it should come to you. But that judgment won't happen to me. Because my substitute, Jesus Christ, took my place. And there should, even in the midst of those difficult passages, there should be joy. And yet, not a triviality, but a deep reverence and respect. So, what does Leviticus chapter 9 teach us New Testament church people? Well, I still think today that you can enjoy worship. It doesn't take your auditorium packed doesn't take 150 or 2,000 people to have a great worship experience. It doesn't take that. It takes you coming for the goal of knowing God. Coming through Christ. Coming in such a way that you're expressing your heartfelt, genuine, whole-souled commitment. Knowing that you're at peace with God and with one another. And having God show Himself through His Word. And you respond. You can enjoy that when you see God's presence in the way that God has expressed it. So, in light of that, I'm a pastor, so I'll give you a few pastoral encouragements, ten of them, nine of them tonight, about the importance of worship. I'm not going to preach every one of them. still have an hour to go, so... <laughs> Let me just give you, in light of what real, really is supposed to happen in worship and the potential that's there, let me just give you nine encouragements that are just practical in nature. I don't have a verse for every one of them or anything like that, but just that I think are applications that would flow from our text tonight. First of all, pray for your heart. Pray for your heart every time you, you are coming together to worship. Israel had this awesome experience. Chapter 10. Aaron's two sons are killed by fire from heaven because they didn't honor God. Don't think that that can't happen to me or to you. So every time that you're, you're on Sunday, knowing Sunday's coming, pray for your heart that the Lord would help you to, to come with the goal of knowing Him. Leaning on Christ and all these things. I love what your pastor does. I do it in a little different way, but how he gives you the sermon texts that are going to be each message that are coming up. Second thing I'd encourage you, meditate on those. But you, you get more out of worship if you come having already looked at the text. And in fact, if you do that every day, when you get up in the morning, it's part of your daily devotions. You know, sometimes it's only four verses. Okay. Read those four verses. Do your other Bible reading and prayer and all of that. And then at night, read the Old Testament or the, the evening passage right before you go to bed. And throughout that week, think on the things that are going to be happening when the message is going to be brought. You'll get so much more because you've invested more in knowing God. Third thing, purify your heart. Purify your heart. 
wholesouled commitment and sin don't go well together. And so, as modern Christians, we have all of the technological gadgets and gidgets and we can you know, connect ourselves to each other in seconds and communicate on short forms. And I think that's somehow how we relate to God. <laughs> Saturday night, turn the TV off. Even if the Wolverines are playing in a night game. Turn it off. Get your heart before the Lord. Confess your sins in anticipation of meeting with Him when you gather to worship. And then go to bed. Fourth thing, get a good night's sleep. I mean, if, if God was going to actually visibly, visibly show up at Ambassador Baptist Church Sunday morning, that would be exciting. Would you be? I'm ready. I want to be prepared. I don't want to fall asleep on Him. He does show up every Sunday at Ambassador Baptist Church. So, I'm not trying to set a bedtime for you, 8 o'clock, no. But, yeah, and, and I I get it. People have medicines that affect... I'm, it's not like if your head was bobbing tonight, I'm trying to throw a bar. No, it's late, I've gone long, all that. But just as an encouragement, remove one excuse by getting to bed early. And then you have all the more fighting chance. Fifth. Fifth thing. Think carefully about your worship. We've sung tonight. Oh, beautiful songs. Not just melodies, but beautiful text. Mm. Wonderful songs of commitment and truth. Did you, did you think about any of them? As you give on Sunday... Why do you do that? For the sake of the gospel. For the spread of the, the gospel of the people here in Royal Oak and, and the missionaries you support in India and in um, Brazil and in Africa, a couple of different places. And people are hearing the gospel. Think deeply about that so that when you come, it's not just like, oh, I hope we pay the bills this week. No. Your gospel is going forward, God. Here. Think about that. And then think. Think hard about the, the Scripture because that's where God will show Himself to you through His Word as it's proclaimed. Six, fight hard to see God. I'm, I'm a flawed human being. Uh, I didn't bring in... Oh, I brought my wife along, but she didn't want to stand up and give any testimony. So, But if she could, she'd probably I'd tell you how many duds of sermons, humanly speaking, I preached. And you may include tonight in there. I don't know. <laughs> you know what? When God's Word is opened, if you fight hard to see Him, He'll be there. That's why we call it God's Word. It's His self-revelation. He is there in every page and in every story. And even in the books where He's never mentioned, He's still there. And look and search, anticipate every time you gather together that God wants you to see things about Him. Not just how to have a better marriage and how to have you know, obedient kids and how to you know, get promoted. At... Fight to see the thing that really matters, God. Seven. Seventh thing. So maybe we're not the kind of people that, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! Run up the aisle! Run back! I mean, maybe that's not us. Well, maybe we can share some of the joy by talking about what you've heard. So at lunch, I mean, radical idea. Have somebody else from the church go out to eat with you or over to your house for the purpose of talking about the message and what you saw about God. What a delight He is. It's like, you're weirding me out. No, that's, that's biblical Christianity. And enjoy Him. And share Him. Get comfortable re reflecting on who He is. Eight. Obey. Be obedient. 
mean, start with the simple things. Again, preaching to the choir. But be here. If you can be here, be here. Plan to be here. Plan to come back on Saturday night so that you can be here on Sunday with your church family. Not a legalistic thing. I'm going on vacation. I won't be at my church on the 12th. It's not a sin. But sometimes, you know, we just treat Sunday like it's any other day of the week and we can tack it on. No, don't do that. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Gather. And then when the Word convicts, repent. Submit. Last thing, submit to God's Word when it works in your heart. These, I think, are are natural outflows of what true worship is. And they are the signs that God is in a place with us on a Wednesday night in Royal Oak, Michigan. God has been here. And you can see Him. Not through a cloud, but through His Word. And you can see how much He wants to have a relationship with you because Jesus Christ, His Son, was sent so that it could happen. And you can see how much He wants to share His nature with you so that you share it with one another. That's fellowship. And you can see that He delights in you enjoying Him through true worship. I hope that's an encouragement from Leviticus chapter 9. And I hope it's a blessing to you. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear God, I thank You for the opportunity to be with this group of believers here. Thank You for friendships that uh, can be formed in school and shared in uh, mutual life vocations like Jacob's and mine. And thank You then for the opportunity to just come and shake hands and sing with, share the Word with people whom You love. Just to be able to to come together having a common bond, knowing that that bond ultimately is a bond that ties us to love and adore and worship You. Pray that You would help us to see the importance of God-centered worship. May we anticipate that day when we will be with You forever. And You will dwell with Your people. You will be our God. And we will be Your people. Thank You for those promises. And help us until that day to delight in our worship of You. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.